It's Friday. I'm Will Robb. He's Michael Girdley. Welcome to our podcast. It is the Four for Friday podcast. Michael, would you like to tell us uh, tell everybody about our format? I would love to. So Will and I are lifelong friends. We get together every week and record a podcast uh, about four topics uh, phrased in questions. So we typically do two lightweight questions and then two heavyweight questions. Uh, though this week, I think we've gotten so excited with the new year that we've done four heavyweight questions. So we're going to see how it goes. Yeah. I'm going to launch into our first question here. Do it. Are you interested in clean energy investments? No. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, that's going to be, it's going to be hard to pass four <laughs> minutes on this question if you just start with no. Well, yeah. Tell me why you're not interested in, in clean energy investments. Uh, so a couple of reasons. One is number one, they like, yes, we need to do more of that stuff, but like, I'm not excited about it at all. Like I'm trying to figure out like why, why I'm not passionate about clean energy investments. And I see these people and I envy them who are like, you know, they're on this crusade to change the world via their clean energy investing strategy. Um, and so there's that aspect of it that, that I don't, I, I just don't get, like, I'm just not excited about it. Just like, I don't like baseball. Like baseball seems really boring. Um, it's kind of the same feeling. I'm just like, this isn't interesting. So there's other stuff as well, but I would say that's the core of it. It's just, it's just not a personal passion. Yeah. Uh, I think having heard you talk about business a bunch of times, one of the challenges of clean energy investments is uh, they tend to be businesses that require a lot of reinvestment of capital to stay competitive. Yep. So if you, for example, are in the business of manufacturing high quality solar panels, well, that business changes all the time. So you have to constantly reinvest in better technology and capital equipment and new ways to build better solar panels. So that makes it a tough business model in terms of uh, what's, your, what's your framework for classifications of different types of businesses? Uh, from- something I, yeah, it's something I copied from Buffett. There's basically, there's three types of businesses. Uh, the, the worst businesses are ones that you keep having to reinvest capital in them to keep them from shrinking or to slow them down from shrinking. So Warren Buffett's classic first investment was uh, a textile plant in, um, in New England that they eventually shuttered. So that's the first type. Like you got to keep dumping capital in this thing just to keep it competitive. Um, number two is the type of business where you have to put in more capital. So like real estate, land, equipment, merchandise, all that kind of stuff. You have to put in more capital uh, and do expenditures there in order to grow the thing. So like a typical retailer does that, right? If a grocer wants to open up a new store, they have to go buy more land and open up a store, right? Pretty straightforward. The best businesses are ones that are the third category. They grow without requiring external capital in them. So um, intellectual property businesses, services businesses, like the free cash flow that comes from uh, from employees and from customers, right? Like you have these customers that pay you stuff, you have free cash flow, you hire more people, you sell their time, right? All of that is um, the type of businesses that are much more interesting and appealing from a capital intensity you know, situation. Like how much cash are you gonna have to keep putting in the business of your after-tax dollars to keep it growing? You know, this, what you're saying is clean energy is clearly not usually the third type. Uh, I think it's not the third type, I mean, I guess that one exception would be is if you could just invent something and sell it and move on, it might be an interesting way to try to do clean energy, but that has a a bunch of challenges too. Yeah. Well, Uh, my my buddies, I mean, I think there's niches in clean energy that are appealing businesses. Like some of my buddies are doing 
um, basically a, uh, a scheme to allow you to, instead of putting solar on your own house, you go put it like on parking garages at scale, right? And then you just own a part of that. So, you know, it's not necessarily capital intensive for them because the homeowners are paying for that solar to be built on this commercial building. And then they're just taking a cut down the middle. So like, I think that that kind of stuff can be pretty interesting. I just haven't seen any part of it that I'm just like, oh, that's an amazing opportunity and I'm passionate about it. Like just, no. (laughs) You know, I think going back 20 years or or more, people have been interested in that kind of uh, green investing or clean energy investing. And, uh, you know, having studied finance or people, you know, talking about how to generate market beating returns or so and so on. Uh, I think it's difficult enough to generate really excellent returns in in the whole universe of investment pos- possibilities. Mm-hmm. I think it's really tough when you narrow it down to just one small sector. Yep. Uh, for my part, I am interested in clean energy investing uh, as a complement to my real estate investing, and uh, in that I think I can get kind of a disproportionate uh, value add after I invest in it. You know, I'll invest in something that's going to create energy efficiency and, and lower my utility buildings, uh, utility bills from one of my buildings. Uh, but then usually what I wind up with is a story that I can tell to my tenants or to future buyers of the building about this is great. We've got this energy efficient uh, system on it. And so it still comes back to discounting the cash flows, but the story gives a little nice abstract value that's disproportionate. And people will say things to me like, oh, well, that doesn't actually help your tenants pay their rent or keep your tenants' utilities bill down. Your tenants won't care about that. Yeah. Actually, they will. They, they do care about that. They feel better about moving into a building that has solar panels on the roof or energy-efficient windows or you know even these things that don't affect their bottom line at all. They yeah. care about it a little bit, composting yeah. in the backyard. Well, I think that you bring a good point, which maybe I had never really thought about this, but you know, I have a real problem with hypocrisy. Like I'm learning that more about myself. Like I just hate bullshit. Um, and like what you're talking about is precisely a thing akin to a really rich person being like, oh, I'm green now. Oh, really? How are you green? I bought the most energy efficient private plane ever manufactured. Like that's, that is no, like you're flying around in a private jet. Like that is not green. Um, and it's kind of the same thing. Like I think a lot of, a lot of what happens in clean energy investing, clean energy in general is just this greenwashing that is just like, no, no, a Tesla is not that much better for the environment. You still bought a hundred thousand dollar brand new car when there's plenty of other opportunities to ride the bus or do other stuff. Like, yes, I, I know you think you're doing right, but in the end, like there's a level of hypocrisy around a lot of the stuff going on. And maybe that's something else. I, I, don't I think like. a lot of people will call that virtue, virtue signaling, mm-hmm. right? We want the appearance of virtue a lot. Yeah. Well, I think, I think hypocrisy and virtue signaling are two different things. Like, I think that it's, it's a, you don't have to be a hypocrite to be virtue signaling. Like it's okay to just be like, yeah, like I want to, I want to signal the virtue of, you know, I, I stand for whatever and, but I'm not going to be hypocritical about it. I'm just going to be real about being a, 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 that kind of person. Like, I'm okay with that. Like, just be genuine, you know? So again, uh, we come back to my personality problem. I, I read, I read an article uh, uh, about this and one of the Kings of this move that you're talking about and that uh, Tom Brady built a lead certified green build house for himself. Yeah. Isn't it like 30,000 square feet? Yeah, it's over yeah, 10,000 square feet. I'll tell you what green certified is. Live in a normal house. 
All right, let's move on to question two. All um, right, you want to fire okay. away? Okay, I'm. I want a disclaimer on this because I did not write this question, but I'm the one asking it. So just well, I'll ask it if you want. No, no, I gotta ask two questions. That's the way the show works. Okay, Will, Will, in all seriousness, what is going on with Bitcoin? Is it the future? <laughs> I don't. I. I'm skeptical about whether Bitcoin is the future. To me, it looks a little bit like a, uh, a tulip craze yep. where people are, are deciding this thing is valuable just because other people think that it is valuable. Right. And it, it is, it's fiat money, right? It is money because we agree that it is money. Yes. And it has no intrinsic worth. Right. On the other hand, all money is fiat money. Right. You know, unless you're trading cigarettes in a, in a prison cell, pretty much anything you might use as currency is valued just because everybody agrees that it's currency. Um, have you, I, think even, I think even gold is like this. It's shiny and nice, but it's mostly valuable because we all agree that it's valuable. It's not, it's not the best possible precious metal yeah. in terms of use value. Have you read uh, George Thor Soros's theory of reflexivity he's got this thing called zero theory the general theory of reflexivity have you heard of this no but that sounds great tell me about yeah, it yeah it's basically the idea that markets change how people think and people change how markets think and then the markets change how people think and so there's actually you know i think we're going to tie back into reflexivity is why i can a agree with you that Bitcoin, you know, has digital gold has a level of utility to it. But beyond that, it's some of the, tech, you know, crypto utopian people are probably a little crazy. No, they're not probably a little crazy. They're definitely crazy. Uh, so like, and I could do that, but then also be like, yeah, cool. Well, I'm going to ride the tulip craze the whole way up. I'm fine with it. Like, yeah, just, I'm, I'm, so, so reflexivity is this kind of idea of how you can understand and kind of balance both at the same time. But it's based around this idea that markets represent sentiment, sentiments represent markets, and there's a reflection both directions in terms of what's going on. It's exactly, it's exactly what you're saying. It's just Soros put it into a, a theory in his investing style. So if we take that a little further, that bolsters the idea that, well, as long as we all agree that it, it is valuable, it'll continue being valuable. Uh, well, and then above that, like, so everybody expects that Bitcoin will keep going up. Therefore, Bitcoin's going to keep going up because everybody expects it to go up. So they're putting money into it. Um, and then, so what that does is reflexivity, you know, you have the efficient market hypothesis, right? Which is garbage. Um, and you say, okay, it's, it's how, if you understand how reflexivity works, you can understand, okay, well, like, how do I make money on that versus what is the intrinsic value of a thing, right? And how you can find these inefficiencies um, that are dependent upon how people are thinking, how the markets are acting at a given period of time. Like, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I do feel obligated to tie this back to our first question. I find Bitcoin a little bit problematic because it's all these elaborate computer calculations to create the Bitcoin and uh, maintain the, the value of the Bitcoin and the idea that each Bitcoin is uh, mathematically unique. And um, yeah. So we have Bitcoin mining going on all the time, people trying to find the next number in the sequence of uh, detailed numbers that is a, a Bitcoin. So that consumes a, a bunch of energy, a bunch of computing power and electricity. 
And then uh, it seems like anytime we were to try to transact with a Bitcoin, we would have the same problem in that we need a lot of electricity just to understand its, its value and, and verify that it's a real mm -hmm. Bitcoin. Yep. So I, th I think that's a really problematic part of Bitcoin that, that people are not talking about enough. Yeah. Well, there's a couple things about that. So one is the validation of Bitcoin. Like there's a certain types of cryptographic functions that are very expensive to do one way, but are very cheap to do the other way. So those are called, those are called asymmetric cryptography. So Bitcoin uses that. So there's elements of it that are um, easy to va validate. Then there are ones that are incredibly hard. The ones that the mining does is brute forcing the incredibly hard ones. Uh, to basically, you know, validate a block of transactions, right, and claim that claim that Bitcoin reward, so um, that the network pays you. So, like all of that, you know, plays in plays into it. I think the second thing I would add is if you go look at where most of these miners are, there's a lot of them in China. You know, so so for all of the all the people who are like, you know, we need to have independence from China and stuff, like. Um, let me tell you guys something. A lot of your Bitcoins are being mined and a lot of that hash power is all happening in random warehouses out in rural China. So there's some other places, but there's a lot in China. Okay. Well, I think oh. we covered Bitcoin. Oh, hey, guys, I own Bitcoin, so I need everybody to buy some so the price goes up. And then if the price goes up, I'm going to sell it. So uh, thanks, guys. Oh, this is not that, investing advice. That's a very, that's a very honest... <laughs> disclosure <laughs> i i'm expecting all of you suckers to buy bitcoin and the price to go up so please do so <laughs> it might go up hey, cool why not hey, cool uh you cool all right. Qu question number three so this comes from twitter there is a never sell movement on twitter where it's just like once you have a good asset never sell it never sell so will should you never sell or should you take profits uh, I think I'm in the take profits part of this camp and that I, I think part of the, the project is distinguishing whether you have a good asset or an asset that has been good and it's time to move on from it or an asset that's pretty good, but you want a better opportunity in the future. Uh, I, do, I do like the buy and hold mentality and I do like never sell. When you describe this question, you added a, a caveat when you have a good asset and made me think, okay, well, if I really do have a good asset, I do want to hold it very long term. Yeah. Well, I think that that does come back to the inherent idea of what makes a good asset, like a, a good asset. Let's, let's take a Warren Buffett example, right? He owns C's Candies, right? Which is of those three types of businesses that we talked about. It's clearly a number three business, right? It just grows no matter what. They open up stores, throw off cash. People love the brand. That's the IP. Like it's part of people's lives in California. For some reason, even though the candy's terrible. Like have you ever had C's Candy? I've had it. It's not I don't, good. I don't, I don't think of it as terrible, but it's certainly not consistent with like new school thinking on nutrition, right? It's, it's a lot of sugar. Even for a lot of sugar, it's bad. I mean, it's not, I've bought it a couple of times and I'm just like, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Anyway, um, so uh, long, long winded answer to that. So you have, you know, you have these, man, I totally got myself off a train of thought. What were we talking about? Well, we were talking about whether something is a good asset or oh, not. Yeah, to so I mean, that, you know, I think I think the never sell movement is actually really a reflection of people trying to think through, you know, portfolio allocation and asset allocation intelligently. 
And, you know, the, the understanding of the never sell movement, I think, understands if you have a good asset that's going to compound 15% year over year, you should never sell it. Well, why should you never sell it? Well, the core reason is you probably don't have something like a seized candy that can compound 15% year over year for decades. And if you have that, like, don't sell it because you're onto something special. Also, like, selling means you're going to probably pay taxes. So, like, don't do that. So never sell is actually pretty smart. As long as the asset is one of those ones that's good. The opposite, I think you should totally sell if you have a terrible asset. Like, like I think the, um, the loss aversion, like psychology stuff, like causes people a lot of problems where like losing, losing 2% on a deal is a million times more, uh, more painful than breaking even um, or, or any, and, and so realizing those losses, people do totally irrational things to avoid losses. And I think that's, but that's totally what you shouldn't be doing, right? If you have something that's losing you money year over year, you should take a loss right now so the, the bleeding doesn't continue. But people will just hang on psychologically just to avoid that, that loss. Right. I think you changed the nature of the, the question a little bit when you qualified never sell a good asset or never sell an asset that compounds 15% year over year. Because yeah, those assets are so rare and the likelihood that you're going to replace it with a superior asset is not very high. If, yep. if you have an asset that does that and can kind of predictably or reliably do that. But I think the real spirit of the question is never sell. Like if you have any asset that is cash flow positive, like should you never sell any asset that returns anything? You know, if you, say you have yeah. cash flow positive, but the cash flows are weak. And I think you're right. I think there's a lot of of devil that you know thinking in the never sell mentality mm -hmm. in terms of like oh i know i'm only going to get a six or seven percent return on this asset but i know it and it's familiar there therefore i want to hold it in the infinite future because i know if i go buy a new asset i'm gonna have new problems that i have to solve with that asset i don't know what they are yet but i'll have to figure them out yeah yeah so like many oversimplifications it leaves out a ton of nuance and I think that also kind of comes back to my, my problem with simplified advice is like the interesting stuff happens all in the nuance and the edge cases. And like, it's why I, it's the thing I hate the most about Twitter or books, books of advice. Like the, the one sentence down, like play long-term games with long-term people. Like, okay, thank you. Totally not actionable. Just like <laughs> totally not actionable. Th thanks for wasting my time, but making me feel good with that whole thing. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, there's so much nuance in terms of how you think about an idea like this. And I guess they're cool because it makes you think about them. But if you just blindly stop at that and follow and be like, well, I'm playing long-term games with long-term people, like, well, you're just going to end up with, you know, short-term results, basically, <laughs> like bad results because you're not thinking deeply about the topic. Right. Okay. Well, you, got, you got me started today, Will. You're going. Bring I'm, bringing, you're I'm going. bringing the heat for Friday. Okay. Uh, are we moving on to... Uh, question number four let's move on to question number four i will ask this question although you wrote it down i'm going to say creating enemies good or bad so so this this has come up because um our, our previous podcast guest uh matthew ford um who is one of our few two-time podcast guests because the first time he showed up 30 minutes late to our recording and we decided to do the whole thing over again. Anyway. Not the only time we've had to do the whole thing over again. The only time we had to do it over again with a guest. Yeah. He's our only two-time guest, but only one recording survived. <laughs> but he, he, he found this podcast that was super interesting where basically this guy, his name is Ben Bergeron. He's a CrossFit coach out of, out of Boston. 
and he does his podcast and the topic was you know they were talking about how to find the extra 20% of motivation right and so the hypothesis was like if you're going to go after something it's pretty easy to find the 80% of motivation right that's the easiest 80% like you you get up you go to work you try or you go to an exercise class and you try or you go to a race and you try um, but what he, what he talked about in that was how do you find that other 20% or even the 30% to make yourself, um, elevate yourself from the 80% to like 110%. And the pattern is he he's noticed is people who are the highest of high performers, they will go and invent stories in their brain to manufacture motivational opportunities. So the classic example is Michael Jordan right? Like if you watch that documentary on him, he like makes stuff up, like makes up reporters saying stuff and he gets mad at them, makes up things his high school coach supposedly said, not true. Like it's all just stuff that he just decided to manufacture a reason to go get that extra 20 to 30% and work harder, more passionately and smarter than the next guy and care more. Like, so it, it ties back to this idea, like, like you can actually take something that's very negative, like creating enemies and spin that into and leverage that into something that is a very positive thing in your life. Okay. Well, I yeah. guess I didn't understand what direction my question was going to go in when I asked it. Yeah. Like it's, uh, so I've caught, I look, I'm not like, I don't know Michael Jordan, whatever, but I have caught myself doing this. Like, like the reason this came up is I was talking to Matt and he's like, have you noticed how like you compete with everybody at the gym, even though they're not, we go to a CrossFit gym, even though they're not competing with you. And you've noticed how you've like, you get mad at them, even though they're not doing anything wrong to you. Like, like I make up stories in my head that then affect him because I yell at him during a partner workouts or whatever. And I say, go faster. Um, but I'll make up these stories in my head to push myself harder and channel kind of what should be something negative into a very positive thing um so yeah so that's how this all came up like i do this like i didn't realize i do it but i make up stories in my brain <laughs> in order to find more you know more in the pit of energy that i have in my stomach uh i've known you for like 25 years we probably shouldn't dig into this too deep on a podcast because <laughs> you definitely do this in different forms uh i think you're right when you uh say like if you can redirect it and channel it into a, a positive useful motivation uh i think you're onto something there well, uh, so you're saying you see me do this negatively and you don't tell me yes oh Is you gotta tell me man that's a risk uh i was thinking of this in in a business context uh should you create enemies good or bad and of course it's bad but I think we have this like reputation management where we always want all our business partners to think kindly on us all of the time. And I think that can be uh, limiting. I think in some moments we have to risk uh, alienating somebody or maybe creating a mild enemy for the sake of doing what's right for us or for our business. And if we have uh, people who are upset about that, well, that's just, part of life. Sometimes you have to say no to people. Right. So that's, that's kind of the context I thought we were going in this, uh, on this question with regards to Michael Jordan, like obviously very successful basketball player, uh, arguably the, the most successful basketball player of all time. 
is it a successful life strategy for most people? If you were a great NBA basketball player and you were trying to push yourself to be the best NBA basketball player of all time, right. of course you have to do something like this. Right. Uh, if you are trying to live a happy life and provide for your family, is this a good strategy? I think it can be. Okay. I have to say that because I've admitted to doing it. And you're like, no, this is totally the wrong thing to do. You should just be kumbaya. I'm not saying it's totally the wrong thing to do. I'm just questioning you a little bit. I think a lot of the stuff you read, if you try to learn from meditation or Buddhism or any of those things, would kind of recommend against this strategy because you're creating a simulation in your head of an adversary or somebody who is out to harm you in some way or out to beat you that's imaginary. And that's actually um, kind of an unhealthy thing to do to your brain. I, I could, I've seen times when I think I do that in this particular case, like if I think about the connectivity of, is that changing my base level of happiness or understanding of the universe, or is it coming as a, as a negative emotion towards those people? Like, I don't think I have that. Like, I don't, I, I don't think those things are connected. It's not, I'm still a very happy person doing this. Yeah, full disclosure. I, I'm not saying that I've mastered these, these concepts that I've read about in Buddhism. I definitely uh, get angry with people or have enemies in my head that I compete against. Uh, and I can't say that I'm a, I'm a monk on always having a, a mild disposition towards everybody and, and loving everything. But I, I do think there's some insight to be learned about uh, avoiding is kind of like everything is conflict driven, uh, anger driven. Uh, imaginary okay. okay. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. I think there is a distinction between conflict and competition, right? Like, like what I'm talking about more is like, like closer to like, how do we turn something into a, a competition that strikes me at an emotional place? instead of i'm I, I don't feel like these are enemies like i, I don't want to go stab and kill people <laughs> like i love my enemy or i love my competitor if that makes sense like they make me better well then what you're really talking about is you're creating rivals in your head okay yeah i dig that yeah like uh, like i yeah i've seen too much in life now to define somebody just as a pure enemy like i i try to try to have more empathy than that which is tough for me i'm not an empathic person did you, did you ever swim with Andrew Rutherford at Lafayette? Did you know him very well or was he kind of on his way out when you uh, He there? was gone my freshman year. He was gone. Before you got there, we would watch him before his race. He was a great swimmer when he was swimming well. Uh, so this guy was most, an Olympian from Hong Kong, right? He's, and went he's to an our American college. who had a, a dual citizenship uh, and qualified for the Olympics coming out of Hong Kong. Uh, kind of uh, NCAA Division One level. Yeah. A qualified for the meet kind of guy. Uh, but he would just get so competitive. He could beat people in events that were not his best event and, you know, just kind of come out of nowhere, or you could just really count on them to win a close race. But we used to watch his race face and he'd get super serious for like a full 10 minutes before the race. And he'd stand around the, stand around behind the blocks with an angry look on his face. And so one time somebody asked him, Hey, Andrew, when, when you have your race face on and you're getting ready to swim, what are you thinking about? And he said, in all seriousness, I think about murdering people. And we laughed and it was kind of ridiculous. Uh, but that was definitely a guy who was creating enemies in his head to motivate himself. Yeah.
Yeah. I, I don't know what happened to that guy. He did not appear to have like the, it, it did not appear to be part of a balanced existence to come back to your point. Yeah. Well, hopefully he's doing well wherever he is. Uh, hopefully he's not out creating enemies. I, I think he's actually probably interested in finding a, a path to enlightenment. Uh, I Googled him once and I was like, I wonder what's going on with that guy. Are you Googling him right now? I'm Googling him. Yeah. Did anything pass? That's kind of a common name. I'm not sure you'll get something reliable on that. Uh, well, link number two is five arrested at Lehigh Lafayette game in 1990 from the uh, <laughs> Andrew Rutherford, a Lafayette student living at Kirby House, was arrested at 3.17 p.m. and charged with disorderly contact. <laughs> oh, good times. Good times. Oh, man. That's amazing that still exists out there. Uh, yeah, it's, it's nuts what you can find on the internet <laughs> with folks. It's also interesting how a lot of people are just not intentional about what the breadcrumbs in their online persona look like. Like, you know, like you got to try to avoid having stuff. Like I Googled a guy the other day who I had a meeting with and it's like the first page is all of him getting sued for fraud. Now I don't think he's a fraudster, but, <laughs> but that was all that was out there. No LinkedIn, no nothing. It was just yeah. like fraud, 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 fraud. Ouch. I was like, Oh boy. Like, yeah. It is what it is there, but like your online, your how you get Googled is really important these days. Yeah, very true. Uh, do you have any uh, last words of wisdom before we wrap up? Nah, thanks for making the time today. This is a fantastic episode. I think I'm gonna listen to it like nine times. Okay, well don't create any enemies while you're listening to it. I'm really mad at you for saying that stuff about me. Okay, well I would say, Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Lizzie. Thanks, Michael. <laughs>